This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate the process of applying for residency in emergency medicine or to EM-sponsored fellowship programs. I'm your host, Mike Gisandi from Stanford University. Let's get started. Welcome to Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by your friends at Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. And it's Editor-in-Chief, my Bay Area next-door neighbor, Dr. Michelle Lin from UCSF. Hello, Michelle. Hey, neighbor. How's it going over there? Nice and not sunny day today. I love it. Yeah, it's raining in the Bay Area. I love it. Today's episode, Michelle, is an interesting one. It's titled, Where Did All the Jobs Go and Did the Applicants Follow? We're going to discuss the ASAP workforce study, recent application numbers in the EM match, and some advice for medical students interviewing this season. And to offer their sage advice on this important topic, we have three outstanding program directors. Dr. Craig Krauss from St. Louis University. Hello, Dr. Krauss. Hello, Mike. We're nice weather here in St. Louis. <laughs> Dr. Cassandra Bradby from East Carolina University. Hello, Dr. Bradby. Hi, everybody. We, too, have rain on the opposite side of the country. Wow, it's lots of weather today. Dr. Adam Kellogg from Bay State Medical Center. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on here. I guess I got to do a weather report, too. It is 72 and sunny and pretty much looks like San Diego at my office window. So uh, take that. Such a nice time to be up in the Northeast. Okay, Michelle, do you remember a few months ago when we recorded Program Directors Reflect on the 2021 match? Yes, one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, it's our annual review of the most recent match statistics. And recall during that episode that we reviewed the numbers and the numbers of applicants went up slightly again, and the number of EM programs rose slightly again, and EM continued to grow and so did our applicant pool as it has every year, year over year for well over a decade, very predictable. Then the last few months have been eventful. Annals published a disturbing assessment of the emergency physician workforce that projects a significant surplus of emergency physicians by 2030, just nine years from now. The number of advanced practice providers continue to expand in size and scope with less need for emergency physician oversight. The coronavirus pandemic continues with the Delta variant hitting the U.S. Southeast very hard in the latest wave. Innumerable anecdotes of emergency nurse and physician mistreatment by patients against the backdrop of this latest COVID spike just a year and change after we were celebrated as frontline workers. And now we see hot off the press numbers that suggest medical students heard all of this and applied to emergency medicine in smaller numbers for the first time in decades. There's a lot to unpack here, and we're lucky to have our panelists to take us all through it. So we'll get started with Dr. Craig Krause from St. Louis University. And Craig, I'd really like you to just kind of give us a broad overview of the ASAP Workforce Report. It was released with some dismal projections. Can you give us a summary? Yeah, so the workforce projection was done by ASAP and a multitude of their partners. They actually released the data back in March and had a webinar back in April. Basically, over a two-year period of time, they were looking at what are the uh, current projected supply of emergency providers and what's really going to be the demand for the board-certified EM doc. So basically, they were looking back and to see basically the supply and demand. You know, what's the baseline, you know, ED physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs? What are the potential growths there or potential declines? And then what is the demand? And they went back and looked at some AHRQ data and some age-specific data to try to figure out, you know, what's the demand for these EM docs here in 2030? It was pretty uh, interesting. Basically, they were saying that right now about 70% of all the EM care is done by EM board-certified physicians, 
And right now, about 14% are PAs, 7% are NPs. And if you look over that period of time, like between 2008 and 2020, there was a 60% growth in the number of EM programs. That's a huge number. And they were saying, if we keep growing at this rate and we don't have the uh, attrition or we don't have the growth of EM jobs, we could have somewhere right around 8,000 excess EM positions in 2030. So it was pretty enlightening as far as what their findings were. So why do they project this surplus? Is it simply that there are too many residency programs or are there other contributing factors? You you spoke about advanced practice providers. Sure. About 20% of EM care is done by advanced practice providers. So that may be decreasing the amount of need for us. Plus, you know, you look at GME growth and look at attrition of EM physicians. Plus, you also have to look at the number of people going to the emergency department. Are they going to other places such as urgent cares and other things that they weren't necessarily doing even before COVID? And maybe COVID kind of sparked a lot of this as far as why they were looking into it. Yeah, you know, the ACGME has projected very similar uh, market forces that are going to drive emergency physicians to work in places that are not emergency departments. So like you said, urgent cares, walk-in clinics, you know, a little bit under the resuscitation level training that they have. But if you own those things and, and you can make money off them, perhaps it's a way to, to work around some of this because you'll still be able to hire physicians. But this has been a, you know, a common projection from a lot of different accreditation boards recently. So APPs are currently part of the, the problem. What, what does COVID play into this? You know, this is all being done against the backdrop of the pandemic. So during COVID, I know uh, in my own shop, I saw a big decrease in the number of patients that we saw. But then I was talking to a lot of my colleagues that were working out in uh, the community and some of the places dropped their physician coverage. Some places that were double covered went to single coverage. And even post-pandemic, some of those places have gone to say, well, we're going to stay single coverage. Those are the numbers that they made the projections on? or No, that's not really. So the projections were from what they were looking at was actually different than that as far as what the numbers were going to be. They were looking at the actual, you know, like, hey, if we take the projections beforehand, even looking at COVID, looking at, I think they were using 2017, 2018 data to kind of look forward and say, hey, what would the growth be in the ED, et cetera? And one of the things is that as our population ages, you would think that more people be using the ED, but when you look at insurances and other pressures to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't be using the ED as your primary place to get your care, that that actually may decrease. I mean, this is not an easy projection. They've looked at a lot of different things to try to come up with this final projection at the end of 2030. Well, it's good to know that the COVID numbers didn't play in and that we're just sort of looking at it through the lens of COVID because we hope, you know, some of those single coverage places go back to double and triple coverage and, you know, result in at least some jobs given this kind of dismal projection. So I'm going to close this section with you, Craig, uh, by asking a question I'm going to ask all three of the panelists. So Controversial question, no right answer, but in your opinion, are there too many emergency medicine residency programs? I think at this time, we're putting out too many people as far as the number of residents. I think we need to look at these numbers and decide what is the appropriate number and where should we be? I hate to say that because I I look at my own program or I look at other programs around the country, and I think a lot of people are trying to do the best job that they can. And I think that it's going to be a difficult task if that were to be the case. 
All right. Well, thanks for that. We're going to move on to Dr. Bradby from East Carolina University. Um, and we're going to change topic and look at the applicant pool. Um, so perhaps the uh, effect of this workforce study is some dismal numbers, if I can use that word again, for application season. So early numbers suggest applicants to emergency medicine dropped this year. How bad is it? Can you give us a sense of the degree of that drop? All right. So there's been a lot of discussion about this this year, about the decrease in applicants to emergency medicine. And even as PDs and a lot of the clerkship directors have also noticed that they're getting a lot of questions, not only in the clinical space, but in our classrooms about how bad is the emergency medicine workforce situation looking like? If they were to choose to do emergency medicine, would they even have jobs? And because of that, we're actually seeing a decrease in the number of our students applying to emergency medicine, anywhere between 10 and 30 percent decreases, depending on where you are in the country and depending on which program you're talking to. So if you look at the AERS 2020 data, there was a total of 3,601 students applying uh, to emergency medicine in that year. This year, we've seen a drop off of about 200 students to about 3,400 students applying to emergency medicine. So not a huge drop off, but still enough to make you wonder exactly how much we're going to see in terms of attrition going forward, the more that this narrative continues. Yeah, I mean, I think what's notable about it a bit is the degree of the drop, but that it went down at all, right? We we do an episode on the analysis of each match year and the number has gone up. It goes up slightly the last few years. You know, we're we're outpacing ourselves with the number of new programs. And a lot of that was um, the osteopathic programs coming into the single accreditation system. So that, you know, made a big spike in the total number of programs, but it continued to go up. You know, the applicants, the applicants matched the number of positions that were going up. And, you know, this is the first time we haven't. And, it, you know, it's really interesting. We can, we can talk about the workforce study, but there's probably some multifactorial reasons that this uh, drop has occurred. Can you tell me what categories, who, who dropped the most out of our, our various types of applicants? So our U.S. allopathic graduates are the ones that dropped off the most. They dropped off about 200 people, which is about the drop that we are seeing overall. In terms of international medical grads, that really stayed about stagnant. There's five people less this year than the previous season in 2020. And across our osteopathic students, we actually had a slight increase of students applying to emergency medicine. There's about 20 people increased this year in comparison to 2020. If you're wondering why we're comparing it to 2020 data as opposed to 2021 data, the 2021 data had a little glitch in it due to COVID and the interview season being delayed and all the other components of that were also delayed. So the numbers don't quite line up just yet. We won't be able to do a direct comparison from 2021 to 2022 era seasons until later this year. Right. We need the final match statistics. These are just initial application numbers that came out very early in October. So yeah, that's a really important point. So workforce study is one of them, but what other factors do you think could be causing the surprising decrease in applicants? I think that social media honestly does contribute to this. Um, like We have a lot of discussion about COVID, about what it is like to be frontline healthcare workers. Initially, we were all considered to be healthcare heroes and then seeing the pivot to being less than that now and how much people have been working, how hard it has been to fight the multiple waves of COVID over time. I think that has affected some of it, not that any other specialty hasn't been affected by COVID, but as the folks who generally see the patients first, I think that you know we have been adversely affected maybe more so than most other specialties other than perhaps critical care. In addition to that, I think 
a lot of the conversation about the workforce in general, not just how it's been affected by COVID, but the increase in APPs in the space, I think also has made a lot of students think a little bit harder about their job choice. Yeah, you know, this is interesting. Those on the panel may remember way back when, when, when Dr. Jazani was just a medical student, many of you are my contemporaries here. Uh, if you remember the 1999 match um, in anesthesia, in, in 1998, anesthesia had a workforce projection. And if you remember back then, anesthesia was very popular, very high salaries, and lots of students going into that field. And this workforce study is very similar, and they had a huge drop in the number of applicants that year to the degree that many, many programs and many top programs went unfilled. It was a big ripple through the entire country in that match, and it took them years to recover in terms of student interest. So I'm glad it's only 10% by these numbers. It certainly could have been worse when we compare to um, historic trends. So I'm going to pose the same question to you. Are there too many emergency medicine residency programs? I think with the number that we have increased our programs over the past few years, I really think this we need to start thinking about at the very least slowing down on the number of programs we are creating. I don't think I would take it as far as some of the projections about we should shut down programs and things like that, but we actually increased the number of EM programs this year by 17. So if you look at it from the standpoint of how fast we're growing, I think at this point, we maybe at least need to slow down on that. I would say that we need to look very hard at those numbers and think about what we're going to do going forward before we create more and more folks into the workforce. All right. Thanks. That's a great segue um, to our last panelist, Dr. Kellogg from Bay State. What is being done about all this? Are, are there any professional organizations or crediting boards that are starting to address this issue? Well, not surprisingly, this got a lot of attention, especially among the big organizations in EM. And so I think pretty much everybody has weighed in in uh, one way or another. And there are lots and lots of different ideas being put out there as potential solutions for this and sort of what need to happen. The two big areas that sort of get discussed is, is there a way to increase the amount of work there is to do? Because the, the projection comes down to the two pieces. There are going to be too many emergency physicians for not enough emergency physician work to be done. So the two avenues of sort of increasing the amount of work, one would be sort of this kind of ongoing discussion that was happening before the workforce projection around APPs in the emergency department, nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. And that's uh, led to a lot of push from the big organizations against independent practice in the parts of the country where that happens. So that's an area that's sort of really getting a lot of attention. And that's been kind of a pet topic for a lot of folks as they sort of see this as being a big issue in their area. And it's very highly variable depending on where you work. Where I am in Massachusetts, we don't see independent practice. And uh, you know, it's a it's more of an abstract threat that we hear about from other parts of the country. The other big area is sort of evolution of the specialty. I know that everybody in this panel, you probably trained in doing something different in many ways than the specialty that you're doing right now. I trained without ultrasound. There was no non-invasive ventilation. There weren't patients sitting in psych borders, sitting in the ED for 48 hours or for a week. It's a very different practice already for many of the things we do, both technology and then the kind of patients you know that we send home from the ED. And I think there's going to be a lot of evolution and practice opportunities. We're a very adaptable specialty, and I've heard a lot of really interesting ideas about what ways to adapt, whether it's taking on a bigger portion of critical care or getting more involved in geriatrics or home health or after hospital intervention, seeing people in their homes. Telemedicine you know, kind of goes on and on all the different places where a highly skilled emergency physician could work. And so growth of work in emergency physicians is another really big area that this can be addressed. 
And then there's the changes to training. So all of the organizations that work on the accreditation, you know, the way it works for emergency medicine residencies is we don't get to decide as an emergency specialty or as the council of residency directors or ASEP or ABEM don't get to decide who has the residency. Uh, they get approved by the ACGME, and then that group can start a residency. And so a lot of folks are looking at recommendations to the ACGME about putting some limitations up or looking at, do we need to change the number of programs? Do we need to change the length of the training and make it longer training to slow this down? You know, almost any idea has sort of been thrown out there, and some of them are probably getting a little bit more consideration than others. I know that any residents in training right now don't love the idea of uh, longer training. Yeah, you, you unpacked a lot there. I think, you know, two important points when we think about the flexibility and practice of emergency medicine, you know, it may not be initially desirable, but it, but it certainly is practical that we can work in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I almost think that we move from this resuscitation specialist to someone who's controlling access to care to the hospital in, in whatever way that happens and directing care to the most appropriate places. And that's what you're, you know, what you're describing. So is it unscheduled care? that becomes the mandate of our, our specialty in the next couple of years. And then certainly the issue with the RRC is an interesting one. You know, the, the RRC just has, a, it's a criterion referenced decision. If your program application is good enough against the criteria, then you're in. And there's no real discussion about, you know, what that means to the overall pool of programs or overall number of grads. Uh, so you're right, you know, the process has to change for the numbers to stabilize. Otherwise, any hospital can just put up a a program as long as they meet the basic criteria. So how does this impact the students this year that are going into the match? We know the numbers are down, but how else do you think this is impacting? I think this is probably front and center on the minds of the students. And my guess is that this is pretty heavily driving decision-making in terms of as the individual student looking at the match this year, if they still want to go into emergency medicine, and I believe that there's going to be a specialty in 10 years and in 20 years and in 30 years, and that it's going to be really interesting and rewarding work, I think it's a great time for folks to be choosing to do it because there is less competition for a spot and for uh, an interview than there has been at any point in the past, especially when you adjust those numbers for sort of the growth that would have been coming on. It was only a drop of 200, but it's more compared to where we would have expected it to have gone. So I don't know. This is a pretty great time. The students I've talked to are sort of a little scared and also a little bit relieved because they've been facing this very uncertain process because they never know how really competitive they are because they don't really know what's in their letters. And so, and they know how important those letters are. So this is, uh, I don't know, might be a good time to be a student who wants to go into EM. Yeah. It's kind of a buyer's market this year for sure. So let's say they pass through the, the sieve of uh, applying and now they're into the interviews you know, I mean, I don't know how much a residency program can control this particular issue. It's beyond the individual residency program. But my guess is students are going to, to bring it up in, in interviews. Should they? Like, should they expect a question about it? Should they ask a question about it? Should they just not bother with this topic because it's not really relevant to the rankless decision? I would think this is probably not a great topic for them to bring up, which does not mean that they won't. I'm planning to and have been already as we sort of interview our rotators when they come through running at this headlong because it came up as something that people were talking about. So I'm going to bring it up and sort of talk about it a little bit as part of our interview process, sort of, you know, just address the elephant in the room. I don't know that it's going to help the students very much unless they really want to know what the program is trying to do to address it. 
And I feel like that's going to open a whole nother can of worms about relationships with if there's APP training going on or like an RED, we have APs as well, both PAs and NPs, as well as our residents working in the ED and could potentially get into, you know, really difficult conversations. You know, I think it depends on the student and what they want to find out. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's such a small amount of time that a student gets with a program director in those one-on-one interviews. And is this the way they want to spend that capital or should they be asking about other things? But you're right. There's a lot of things I guess the program can do, at least around the APP issue. And I guess that's perhaps germane to the rank rank list decision. I I still struggle with whether, you know, one or two APPs competing for, you know, that's the question, right? It's competing for learning opportunities. That's the question that is queried on the um, ACGME resident survey every year. And, you know, are they really competing for learning opportunities or are they decompressing the ED? And it's it's just whatever lens you put it on. So um, we're going to close here with the same question. Are there too many emergency medicine programs? I think right now it's hard for me to not say yes to that because I think there are more programs. The balance of programs is not aligned with the students. The numbers may be pretty even, but those students are not applying evenly distributed to where those programs are. I'm really worried about folks who are in areas that don't get where they're seeing those bigger drops in number of applications. Maybe a really scary match year for a lot of programs. And if the students are not sort of aligned with where they're applying to, there could still be a lot of students who otherwise, you know, could have a spot who are going to go unmatched and are going to end up having, you know, there could be a big soap, a big scramble this year that we haven't seen in emergency medicine as long as I've been involved. Yeah, this might be the first year you can enter the specialty through the soap. That's true. That's true. Michelle, I'm going to ask the same question to you. Are there too many residency programs? You know, that's a great question. I think I lean towards what Cassandra said. I think the rate of the increase in new programs is way too high. I'm still okay with a few new programs here and there based on needs, based on geography, but but I agree with you. The, the pace needs to slow down. Yeah. You know, you wonder if the criterion just gets moved and there's only X number of programs allowed through each year and you really compete for those couple of spots. I mean, you know, there's there's so many things that can be done. I just hope there's some action. Do you mind if I interject here? And I just so want to appreciate the panelists. If you don't understand, like they looked into this Excel spreadsheet into the weeds of the data which I think you guys are getting really hot off the press information, which I love. And I really do agree with you. This is, if you're a student applying right now, congratulations, you're in the driver's seat. If you look at these numbers comparing this year to two years ago, ERIS 2022 to ERIS 2020, it looks like the average number of residency applications that each program is getting went down from like 800s to 700s. I think you are much more in the driver's seat, despite all of these forces that you really don't have any control of. You at least can be reassured in these numbers that are available. What do you think, Mike? I think you're entirely right. It's a it's a buyer's market in many ways, and you know I think what the interesting numbers are going to be in the spring. And, you know, obviously it's the unfilled rate, and you know I think we all anticipate it's going to go up for the first time. But also just the number of spots on a rank list that a student needs to go down to match. I think that's a you know an average number that uh, the NRMP shares every year. And I bet that number tightens quite a bit. And if so, then you know I think all of the projections from today are going to be accurate. Absolutely. I do have uh, one last point, which is I do like what Craig said in that there is this proposal of also expanding, or I think all of you mentioned, which is expanding the scope what of what an emergency physician's role is. And I think it's 
changed from year to year. It's expanded in terms of our roles year to year. So I think as a student, I would think seriously beyond just like, hey, I'm going to work my shifts, clock in, clock out, get my salary. Like think about what your physician plus model would look like so that you can pivot when all of the uncertainties come up. So, you know, are you interested in social medicine right now, which is a huge budding field that emergency medicine is encompassing or palliative care, geriatric medicine. There's a lot of interesting avenues to take. So I would try to diversify and look at what are other possible branches of emergency medicine you might grow into and potentially lead down as we expand the workforce. Always the glass half full. Absolutely. You know, I, I, the optimist to my pessimist, I'm going to tell you that's perfect, <laughs> perfect pair. Sunshine. I'm curious, informal poll, I have a challenging question, very controversial for the panelists here, What's which that? there is no right answer. And the soap, also previously known as the scramble, I am curious what your crystal ball will forecast in terms of how many open slots will there be in programs that applicants can scramble into after the match. I'm going to start with Craig. Ooh, the hard question. Um, okay, I'm going to say 20. So there's usually like one or four, it's usually, you know, so insignificant that it might as well be zero. Last year, it was 14. 14? All right. So knowing that last year was 14 and the previous year was 13, and we saw a 10% drop in folks applying to emergency medicine, I'm going to go with 18. Oh, look at you with your math skills. I'm going to try and and even it out a little bit, and I'm going to go with 18. Uh, is this prices right rules? I just need to know. <laughs> That's right. No, it's always prices right rules, always, always. In life. I'm impressed that you could pull that math off. I don't think I could answer that I question. Adam. Well, if we're going to go prices right rules, it's a different answer because then I'm going 19 because I think the actual number is going to be about 50. But why would I give away all of that value? But uh, the more I've looked at this, the more convinced I am that it's going to get really ugly because we have such a misalignment of where people want to go to residency, where people want to be physicians. I mean, it's part of the reason we have the workforce autonomy issues is we can't get emergency board certified emergency physicians to go to rural areas and critical access hospitals. And so programs that are newer, that are in areas that don't get as many applications that are in that list where they've dropped by 30, unless they all really change their strategy, I think there's going to be a lot of people unfilled because I think there's, while there's an even number, I think there's a pretty big mismatch between where people want to be and where they're going to have to be and where they're going to settle in that soap process. That's such a good answer, but I really want to anchor on the decision to go for 19. So, well, yeah, that's just, that's just 50 is that you'd get both showcases together, right? If you, if you get it exactly right, you're only going to get one showcase in this way. Okay, I'll take 50 then. I want both, I, I, I want both St. Louis and East Carolina to be mine. I will take both. There you go. All right. Awesome. But now, wait a minute, Mike. You didn't answer. Oh. oh did you say answer? Um, Are you going to 20 it? Are you going to price this right that? Oh, that would be, that'd be <laughs> sneaky. Bondy, which I often am. I don't know. My answer, uh, I think it's going to be higher. It I is. think it's 70, 80, 90. You know, if you think about the total number of positions, what, there's 24, 2,500? I don't know off the top of my head. 2,700 is the number I got out of the workforce report. So could it be one over 27th? You know, is that the the number? I don't know. Maybe. It's going to be like 50. Yeah. It's going to be a big number. 
All right. Well, let's uh, let's close it. Thank you for a wonderful discussion. Let's let's uh, close it and switch gears and give a time for a little bit of commercials for our three programs. So we'll start um, with Craig. Tell me something I don't know about St. Louis University. Okay, St. Louis University. Hey, we just built a brand new hospital this past year. So we opened in September first uh, of two thousand and twenty, uh, and it was crazy. We were doing it right in the middle of COVID. So we have a brand new ED, brand new hospital, great trauma. We absolutely love being in uh, St. Louis. All right, students, check out St. Louis University. Their trauma numbers are through the roof. So that's a great place to train. Cassandra, tell me something I don't know about East Carolina University. So East Carolina University, as named, is in the eastern port of North Carolina. We cover 29 counties and are the only quaternary care center for those counties. So we are super lucky that we get to see everything that you would expect from emergency medicine other than high altitude sickness because we see everything else down to shark bites. So if you want to come and learn amazing emergency medicine and be about an hour and a half from the closest beach and about two and a half hours from the Outer Banks, you should come check us out. You know, my mind is spinning with the one disease that's not in eastern North Carolina. I'm going to figure it out before we before we. All right, students, check out East Carolina and its huge catchment area. And then lastly, Adam, tell me something I don't know about Bay State Medical Center. Well, Mike, I'm not sure if you don't know this, but I think a lot of people don't know that Bay State Medical Center is not in the Bay Area of San Francisco and is actually in Massachusetts, but is about an hour and a half inland. We're a University of Massachusetts affiliate. There's two UMass residencies. We are the one that is further west in the western part of the state around lovely Springfield, Massachusetts, home to the Basketball Hall of Fame and also an enormous catchment area. Uh, We don't get shark bites here though, because the Cape is probably about a two and a half hour drive out to Cape Cod from here, but just about everything else we do. And it's really lovely this time of year, but it's going to get cold soon. I grew up in that part of the country. It's just beautiful and Bay State's located in such a nice part of Massachusetts. I also remember very fondly going to a SAM years ago, the one that was in St. Louis uh, to date myself and uh, hanging out with the Bay State faculty who um, really uh, were so impressive and such a, a lovely and warm program with the students and uh, residents and, and faculty then. And I know it's carried on uh, many, many years after that. So students check out Bay State Medical Center. And Michelle, we're all set for today. I think this was an interesting episode and we'll have to see how it plays out in the next couple of months. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emergency Medicine Match Advice. You can view any of our episodes for free on Allium's YouTube channel. Also, check out summaries of our episodes as blog posts on Allium.com and in the publication A User's Guide to the Allium EM Match Advice series in the June 2017 issue of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. We love to hear from our listeners. Post your questions or comments for any of our episodes on Allium.com. Thanks for joining us.